take your Bibles and turn to Philippians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14 this morning. Now last week we uh, looked at the exaltation, the hyper-exaltation of Christ uh, when he is we saw he was the lowest he could be as God. He could not have gotten any lower when he became man, but then he was hyper-exalted, it says in that passage, and given a name that's above every name. He was given the name Yahweh. It was his name anyway, but God just kind of made it public. And from that exaltation of Christ, Paul then goes into now, y'all, again, right? Because this has been a y'all letter the whole way through. Uh, he says, now, now that you've seen Christ and you've seen his exaltation, let me tell you what your responsibility is. On the heels of Jesus' obedience, because if you look back, that was a word that, um, that Paul used. He was obedient. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So as we see that obedience, Paul is going to say, now it's time for you to also renew your obedience, to, to be obedient. He brings up our obedience. He is specifically talking to a, a group that we're going to see as we move through the, the rest uh, of the next week or two, the, the rest of verses through 18, and then a couple of times as we move through Philippians. He's talking to a church that is beginning to have some rumbling, rumblings of dissension. There are problems that are beginning to, to spring up in this still fairly young church. And he knows that, and he's heard about it, and he's, he's trying to get them to see those issues. That's why he's already told us to put others above yourself, to lessen yourself. He talks about Jesus humbling himself, because that's an example to us, to humble ourselves. He knows it's coming, so now he's going to say, hey, you saw Jesus' humility and his exaltation. You see who he is now. Renew your obedience to him. And he's going to use a phrase that is a little awkward for us, uh, especially as Baptists who believe that we don't earn our salvation at all. We don't work for our salvation. He's going to use a phrase, work out your salvation. Work out your salvation as God works and wills the outcome through you. That's the message he has for the Philippians in verses 12 and 13. That's the message that we have this morning. Paul writes, Philippians 2, 12, 13. It'll be on the screen. copy of God's Word is not in the pew in front of you. That's right. Um, but hopefully you have yours. Therefore, my dear friends... Just as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but even more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is working in you, both to will and to work, according to his good purpose. Short passage today, but uh, packed with uh, a lot of theology and a lot of uh, of. of command. There is an imperative in here. We're going to get to that when he says, work out your own salvation. That's our imperative this morning. But Paul starts off with their past obedience, telling them 
what they've already done and what, what they know. It's a, it's a fairly common technique in the managerial world, uh, in communication. When you have to tell somebody to do something else or to, continuing, to continue to do something they've already been doing or to redirect them either, you, you have done a great job on, on this part of what the, the project was. But now what I need you to do is pivot or we, there's this other area you need to work on. We start with the compliment, right? And then we give them the bad. What do you want, good news or bad news first? I'm always a bad news first person usually. I don't want the good news first. Let's, let's get that out of the way. But some people, let's, let me give you the good news and we'll get this stuff. Well, this isn't exactly good news, bad news, but he tells them at the beginning, he talks about their past obedience in the first half of verse 12. Therefore, my dear friends, I mean, he starts off that way. He does this a lot. He even does it with the Galatians. If y'all remember when we went through Galatians on Sunday nights and then uh, Wednesdays, uh, he, even with Galatians, where it was a harsh letter, where he was letting them have it, brothers and sisters, my dear friends, he's, he's got this warm affection, Paul does, as he guides them to what's next, what they should be doing. Therefore, my dear friends, we should hear the, the pastor's heart of Paul. Always with a, a mind of love, a heart of love toward them, but always with the goal and the purpose of teaching, discipling, and correcting. My dear friends, of course he said, therefore, and I talked about that a little bit at the beginning, we always look back. But we look back further even than just the exaltation of Christ. We, we look back to where he told them to uh, put, keep growing in knowledge in, in verse 9 and of every, in every kind of discernment. And he tells them to um, advance, how he has advanced the gospel even in his current state and tells them for li to live for Christ. In the beginning of chapter 2, he tells them to have the same love, united in spirit. Consider others as more important than yourselves. Verse 5, adopt the same attitude as that is, which is in Christ Jesus, where he humbled, where he emptied himself and humbled himself. Therefore, my dear friends, my brothers and sisters, my church, You've always obeyed. Now he gets to obedience. And obedience here, we, we see it and we think of the list of rules, right? Obedience. Don't do this, do this. Don't do that, do that. Obey, we tell our children and we drill it into them. And what does obey mean? It means don't stick gum under the couch cushion. Um, don't kick the dog. Do clean up your room. Do take out the trash. Obedience is doing all those rules. Here, though, what we see in obedience for Paul is less about following rules and more about submission to Christ's lordship. What does that mean? How is that different, Michael? Isn't going to be they're going to be following rules if we submit to lordship? Yes, sure. If we submit to Christ's lordship, there are going to be things that he says do that we do, and he's going to, there are going to be things that he says don't do that we don't do, of course. But there's a different attitude about it. We go to, uh, you, you go to work, and if you work at a plant, there are, what, a thousand 
847 rules that you have to follow because of all the procedures, and some of it's for safety, and some of it's for uh, just protocol, and all these other things, and you follow those rules, but, but do you go in thinking, I just love the CEO of this company. Man, I, it, it brings me joy to come to work because I know the CEO and he loves me. So therefore, all these rules are great. Just, they're, oh, we don't know. I got to wear this and put on this and do them stupid rules. And, and, and even the ones that are for our safety, right? We gripe about them. Inconvenient. I'm not going to pull that plug. Until somebody pulls that plug and then the whole place blows up. Um, submission to lordship, though, comes at it from a completely different direction. Submission to Christ's lordship says, I have the relationship. I do love the CEO. And the CEO loves me so much that the CEO died for me. And had he not died for me, I would never have a relationship with the CEO but because he did, now I have a relationship with the CEO that will last forever. And, and, and not only do, does, do I have the relationship, I'm not who I was because of the, the, the CEO. I've been saved from things. I'm saved from eternity in hell. I'm saved from my own sinfulness. I, I, my chains are gone. I've been set free. How many of y'all can sing about that, about your boss at your work? Probably none of us. I can It's a perk. I can. And you can about Christ. And it just puts a whole different spin on obedience when we say we begin with submission. We begin with love. We begin with a heart turned toward him. And then we say, now, Lord, what would you have me do? Obedience. Just like you've always been obedient. Be obedient now. Paul is clear that the goal of this imperative that he's going to have for us in just a few words is going to be obedience. Just as you've always been obedient, you think he's going to say, now you don't have to be. No, clearly, just as you've always been obedient, Continue to be obedient. In my absence, he says, therefore, my, my dear friends, just as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, not only when I was there with you, not only when I was among you and, and you submitted to Christ's lordship, not only then, but even when I'm not there, even more, actually, he says, in my absence. Paul knows that it's one thing for the people to be immediately under his teaching, directly under his teaching and hearing things and going, oh, okay, I need to do that. But if the guy who started the whole thing is gone, maybe you start to think, well, maybe he didn't mean it. The number one thing, and I actually I haven't experienced this as much as some of my friends have, but there are fun little polls that fly around uh, Facebook. Um, hold on just a second. I don't know who's in the booth up there. Is that Carol? Can it can it go forward a slide? No, 
No, ma'am, keep, keep, to the, uh, I, I put too many verses in there. That's my fault. Just keep going to the sermon slide. Next one. I'm already halfway through. There we go. That's where I am. Uh, I put too many verses in there. I thought I was going to preach the whole thing this week, and I, for y'all's benefit, cut it down to two verses, but I didn't change it in the slides. Thank you, ma'am. So in, in my absence, he's saying, oh, here, I know what I'm saying, yeah. Um, not as much a deal for me, but I see the Facebook polls in my little pastor groups go around. What's the number one thing people do when they find out you're a pastor? And inevitably, the biggest piece of that pie chart is, does anybody know? Stop cussing. That's the number one thing people do when they find out you're a pastor. I, I've not found that to be the case. Uh, normally what I get is either, well, most recently it was, so what do you think about Freemasons? I don't, ever. I mean, occasionally when I see the thing on the back of the car, I go, oh, Mason. That's it. So, you know, I, I, that, that, but, but for most people, it really is. And I've seen it a little bit. I, I've seen it when I've ha- held uh, jobs in secular environments and they find out I'm a pastor and it tapers off a little while, but then they get comfortable and don't worry about it anymore. But, but, but that's kind of what he's saying here. It's, it's don't just stop cussing because I'm in the room. Stop cussing because you shouldn't cuss. Much, much more broadly, the pastor's presence shouldn't make a difference in the lives of the people in Philippi. That's what Paul's saying. Don't, it, it shouldn't matter if I'm there with you or not. It shouldn't matter if, if I'm the one that's there on Sunday or some other preacher is there on Sunday. It shouldn't matter if I'm there with you all week. My presence shouldn't matter. And I think there's more to it here than just Paul saying, don't change your, your actions just when the preacher's around. What he's saying is, I, I believe, is it's absolutely vital, or maybe let me paraphrase it this way, it's absolutely vital that believers have more than the Sunday morning sermon to prepare and disciple them. It's more than just don't, don't do certain things when I'm here but live your life such that you are constantly being discipled, you, you are constantly being fed, you're not depending on Sunday morning, you have a relationship with the Lord yourself, you have uh, time, spent time in His Word, so that you don't need me to be there every day. No, 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 stuck. You've got the Holy Spirit, you've got everything you need. So in my absence, you've always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but even more in my absence, as you have spent time in His Word, as you have been gradually discipled, we come to the imperative, work out your own salvation. With fear and trembling. Work out your own salvation with fear and and trembling. Now, as I said, for, for Baptists, this passage makes us go, wait, hold on, stop just a second. We don't work out our salvation. We believe, and God does the saving. Salvation is, a, is wholly a work of God. We don't, we don't have to earn it. We don't do anything to keep it. It's not of us. It is totally of God. And so what in the world could Paul mean when he says, work out your salvation? Well, first of all, salvation here does not just mean justification. 
Justification is that moment when we are saved, when we are justified. We weren't innocent, boom, now we are. That moment of salvation is our justification. And Paul is not saying here, work out your justification. In this passage, particularly, but throughout Paul's writings, there's this constant theme that, I, that salvation is more than just that moment of belief, more than just that moment of justification. We would use a couple of different phrases to express this. You've heard me say before, already, not yet. We are already saved, but we're not yet fully saved, right? Who in here still sins? Okay, you're not fully saved. One day you will stop sinning. You'll have to die to do it, but you'll stop. You will be fully, fully saved. Already, not yet. We, I've used the phrase before that you are justified, you are sanctified, and you are glorified. You're saved when you accept Christ, when you believe in him. Throughout your life, you're sanctified as you grow in your faith, you grow in your knowledge of him. And then when Jesus comes back and brings all things to fruition, we will get glorified bodies and we will spend eternity in heaven. Another phrase that we might use, and this one I think it works best this morning for this passage, you are saved, you're being saved, and you will be saved. And that's not to say that we are gradually saved. It's not to say that we start a process at some point of saving us, and then there's this, there's this gap time uh, where we, we, we made a decision, but we're not saved until certain things happen. We're not talking about that, though you go back and you read Matthew chapter 13 about the seeds that fall in different soils, and that's a whole different can of worms that we're not going to open this morning. But what he is saying is not work out your justification, but work out your sanctification. Work out your salvation. Work out your being saved. Work out your being more Christ-like. Spend time becoming a better Christian. Spend time loving God more. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Spend time loving your neighbor more. Love your neighbor as yourself. We get those two commandments, right? We, we, we realize that all the others just fall into place. The ten fall into place. We won't murder people if we love them the way we love ourselves, right? We won't lie to people uh, if we will love them the way we love ourselves. We don't lie to ourselves. I mean, I do a little when I look in the mirror and say, I'm not as fat as I think I am. That's a little bit of a lie to me. But, but, but then always there's the truth, the, the other voice in my head going, yeah, you are. So, you know, we, we try, but it doesn't work. We, we, we don't do things to other people or shouldn't do things to other people. That Golden rule, we wouldn't want them to do to us that, we don't do to ourselves, and of course we go back to loving God with everything that we have, then we won't do those things to other people. So, work out your salvation, he says. But what does this work out mean? Well, as I said, it's an imperative, and as we talked about uh, a couple of weeks ago, this is a corporate imperative. It's a plural imperative, right? It is y'all work out this is not a word, but y'all's 
salvation. The possessive plural y'all, y'alls. Doesn't work when you type it into Microsoft Word. But work it out. But there is an individual expectation in it. Y'all work out your salvation as a church. Remember, Paul is talking to a church that he knows is beginning to have rumblings of discontent and dissension. Y'all work out your salvation. Y'all work out your justification. Y'all work out your relationship with Jesus so that your relationship with each other is better. Y'all work out your sanctification so that you are putting other people before yourself, right? The beginning of of chapter 2 looking at other people as more important than yourselves. Y'all, work out your sanctification as you look at Jesus, who gave up everything he was, everything he had, to become nothing that he was, nothing that he had, and as a matter of fact, became the worst of anything he probably could be, and suffered in the vilest way he possibly could have in order to serve people who were going to kill him. Remember two weeks ago? Maybe it was the last week we talked about that. Two weeks ago we talked about that. Jesus became the very thing that was going to make him suffer. Work out, church, the way that you treat each other so that you will have this relationship as a church that he's going to get to in a little while, or not this week, to each other that makes you holy. We have an individual responsibility for our salvation. So before anybody says, well, Michael says we get saved as a group. No, I didn't. We, we have an individual responsibility for our salvation. I have to go to Christ and say, I am a sinner. I repent of my sin. I place my faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and he saves me individually. My salvation does not save my wife. My salvation does not save my children. My salvation as the pastor does not save the church people. We also have an individual responsibility for sanctification. It is my responsibility to make me holier. It is your responsibility to make you holier. It is our responsibilities as individuals to follow Christ better. Yet, we as a church, we as believers, the the Bible never lets us get away from the communal responsibility. We have a communal responsibility to each other and to the world. We are to present as a church a model of relationship to the world so that when we go out as a church to the world they look and they say that's something i want to be a part of does the world say that very much does it appear in your opinion does the world look at the church and say i like that boy they seem to get along great wow they just love each other in that church i want to go and be a part of that if that's not what the world sees, then the church has a communal responsibility to work out our salvation, our sanctification, and be more like the Christ that we see in verses 9 through 11, and less like a church that doesn't love each other. Working out, then, is obeying That's what he says, right? You've always obeyed, so work out your salvation. Obey in this area. Your salvation, or in this case, your sanctification, is worked out 
when you obey, but when you fall under the lordship of Christ. Again, am I sanctified as I follow the rules? Maybe. But are you, if I go back to my probably not that great analogy of working in a factory or a plant, are you a company man just because you follow the rules? Are you considered a, a loyal employee just because you follow the rules, or do you follow the rules to get the benefit of a paycheck? Boy, if I could leave here, I would. I can't stand anybody here, but these are the rules and they pay me. Does that sound like a good relationship, or, or do we have a relationship? Do we fall under the lordship of Christ? I mean, you could hear how horrible that would be. You know what? I don't like Jesus. But I want him to save me, so I'm going to follow his rules. Is anybody see? That's not right, is it? That's right. My six-year-old gets it. That's not right. It's not. That's not how it works. That doesn't sound like salvation, does it? But if we begin with the lordship of Christ, if we begin with the relationship and make that our working out, if we start at that relationship, then working out our salvation under the lordship of Christ, then we, I think, almost fall into obedience. It's not quite that easy. We, we never fall into the good things. We usually fall into the bad things. But if we begin with the lordship of Christ, if we begin with love God, love your neighbor, but don't stop there, then we will work out our salvation, our sanctification. It is our individual and corporate responsibility to work toward our sanctification. Then he says, do it with fear and trembling. Now, this is holy awe and wonder. If we're not careful, we read that and we say, work out your salvation fearfully and tremblingly so that you don't screw it up so that you don't miss out on your salvation, so that you don't get out of, uh, out of line and suddenly Jesus goes, you're done. That, that, that's, if, we're, if we're not careful, that's the way we read that. Instead, no, what he is saying is, did you see the Jesus that got exalted, hyper-exalted? Did you see all of creation bowing? Did you see every tongue confessing? That's the Christ that we are obeying, worshiping, submitting to, have the relationship with. So therefore, if that's the Christ we see, and if that's the Christ we know, and that's the Christ we have a relationship with, shouldn't we, in obedience to him, work out our salvation amazed that we're a part of his family? Awe and wonder that he would save us at all. Awe and wonder that the second person of the Trinity would empty himself, come to earth, humble himself as far as he could get to the point of death, even death on a cross. If all creation will bow and confess, then shouldn't our lives as believers be examples of bowing and confessing Awe and wonder. If, if the world looks at the church and sees a hateful, uh, divided body, that's a horrible thing. But if the, also, just as much, I think, if the 
world looks at a church and sees a, a church that does not hold Jesus Christ in awe and wonder and live under his lordship and see that lordship lead to obedience and um, working out of our sanctification and changes in hearts, then the world sees a church, a Jesus, that can't do anything. Why do I want a Jesus that doesn't even change the people who claim to be believers? I knew old so-and-so before he went to church, and I know him now after he goes to church, and I don't see a difference. So we work out our salvation with holy awe and wonder. We don't have to wait as believers until the day Jesus is hyper, we see Jesus hyper-exalted. We don't have to wait until every knee will bow and every tongue confess. We don't have to wait until then. We get to do it now. And we serve that God of power now. And we have a relationship with that God of power now. And if you're thinking like I'm thinking, that sounds hard, you're right. And Paul knew it was hard, and Paul knew we would be thinking that, and the Holy Spirit knew it was hard, and the Holy Spirit knew we would be thinking that. So the Holy Spirit put in verse 13. For it is God who is working in you, both to will and to work according to his good purpose. This does not get us off the hook. This does not take away our responsibility, but it does tell us how we can achieve it. First of all, we see that God is working. And if we go back three Sundays ago to 2 Chronicles 7.14, where it says, seek my face. If God is working, and we talked about how when he says, seek my face, you, you have three options here. God's looking away from you. He's turned his face from you because he has turned his back on you. He's turned his face towards you because you're about to get a whooping. Or he's turned his face towards you in, uh, in um, honor's not the right word, uh, in, in, in acknowledgement of what you're doing, and in, in love. Those are the three different ways we see God turning his face in the Old Testament. So if we want to know where God is working, we, we look where he's looking. When, when uh, I was younger and would go hunting with my, uh, my grandfather and my daddy, uh, especially when I was much smaller, if, if the animal we were hunting stopped, I didn't see him because, you know, I'm five, six, seven, eight years old. And, and, and it's the hardest, and, and, and try this today with your children or grandchildren or whatever. You know, try to get them to see something that you see way off in a field somewhere as you drive along in the car. They don't know where you're looking. Or better yet, have your child say, hey, did you see that, Daddy? I'm driving, I, you know, I have no idea where you're looking. But then we, you look and see, okay, where's he looking? He's looking over, okay, oh, yeah, I see it now. Right? We, we see what he's seeing. We look at what he's looking at. And so God is working, so if we humble ourselves and seek his face or pray and seek his face, and we see where he's looking, we see what he's looking at, we see what he's working, we then join the work. Now I'm talk, sounding like Henry Blackaby and experiencing God. It just all comes together, doesn't it? 
See, God is the one who empowers us to work out our own salvation. When he says, work out your own salvation, God doesn't just step back and say, all right, let's see you do it. No, that's wrong. Oh, well, you really are stupid, aren't you? That's not how it goes together. That's not what he's doing. He empowers us to do that, but he doesn't do it for us. Nor can we say, all right, God, i got to work out my salvation. You're the one who wills it. Make me holy. Fix me. Go ahead, do it. What? Drill the hole, pour it in, however you have to work. You know, what? It, neither of those make sense. We work out our salvation, and God empowers us to work out our salvation. And then he does it among us, right? For it is God who is working in doesn't carry in English, but it does in Greek. For it is God who is working in y'all. Remember, Paul is writing to a church, writing to a group. God is working in y'all. He is in and among us. He is in us working, and he is among us working. In us as individuals, and among us as a church family. God is working both angles. He's working in us as individuals and among us as a church. Our church can't, our church, our church family, our church body can't grow, change, reach the world until we as individuals have grown, changed, and reached the world. Or as until, us, uh, until we as individuals are growing, changing, and reach, reaching the world. It, it, it should... And, and some of you are like way ahead of me, and you're going, well, of course, Michael. The church as a group can't do anything until the church as individuals do something. Glad you were ahead of me. Now let's get the rest of us who aren't are going, oh, okay, let's get them to join us. God is working, and he's working on us as individuals and as a church to, do, to will and to work is what Paul says next, to will and to work. So first of all, we see that his will should be, our will should be his will. He's working us to will. Go back to verse 9. Have this attitude. Nope, verse 5, sorry. Adopt the same attitude. Adopt the same will. Have a mind that is transformed by the working of the Spirit, not conformed to the world. Not merely a list of do's and don'ts. Have I said that once this morning already? It's not just doing or not doing. It is being. It is a relationship. It is a change of mind, of heart, and of will. The will comes first. Before the do, the will must come first. Get your mind right. And not motivated by fear and trembling. Not motivated by fear at all. We are motivated by holy awe. We are motivated when we are invaded by the Holy Spirit. Our will should be His. And if... Not, I don't, I'm not touching anything, but who knows. But if not only should our will be his, our work should be his, right? We see where his face is pointing. We seek his face. We're doing the work he is doing. 
But what Paul is saying here is, if you have his mind, the mind of Christ, if you have his attitude, the same, adopt the same attitude as Christ, you'll have his actions. I mean, doesn't, doesn't that make sense? If, if you put, I don't know, if you put unleaded gas in a jet, I don't think it's going to work at all. But it's certainly not going to go fast, right? If you put jet fuel in a jet, suddenly, the, what you go, put in affects the actions, affects what comes out. If we put into our will the mind of Christ, if God is working in us to will, then what comes out, the actions, the work, will be God's as well. I mean, this will mean a couple of things for us, though. And it means some scary things for us, believers. It means that those things you think you can't do, you can and it means those things you currently don't want to do, you will. It means change. It means being what you aren't. It sometimes means being what you don't want to be. What you fight against. What you say, no, that's not right. No, that's not the way I was raised. No, that's not what tradition says. That's not what whatever says. When we change our heart, our mind, our attitude, or rather when God changes our heart, our mind, or our attitude, it leads to changed behavior. God is working in you both to will and to work according to his good purpose. It pleases God to lead and empower us to have Christ's mind and actions. It pleases God. It is His good purpose. Or some translations will say, according to His good pleasure. If God is love, and God is good, and the Bible tells us both of those things are true, then what pleases Him is always good and loving. And it is always good and loving toward us. So if God wills it, in us, and God works it in us, and it's His, according to His good pleasure or His good purpose, then it is what we are to be sanctifyingly obedient. Sanctifying obedience. So, what should I do? We're going to go back a little ways. This is building on itself. This is why it's so important, I believe, as a preacher, to go through books of the Bible, especially Paul's letters, because he is not writing two sentences at a time and sending them to people. These aren't tweets. These are letters. And so we build on it. What should I do? First, we go back to verse 5. We imitate Christ by emptying and humbling ourselves, right? We talked about that two weeks ago. We're going to talk about it some more, and we'll talk about it again. Then we internalize Scripture so that it becomes a part of you, right? Even if I'm not there, Paul says, know what you are supposed to be doing. And let me remind you, I think we forget this sometimes, I know I do, that when he is taught, when, he, when Paul talks about Scripture, when they got together and the preacher stood up in front of them on a Sunday morning and preached, 
There was no New Testament. At some point, they might have read Paul's letters, but most of the time, they were teaching Old Testament Scripture. So they were getting all the rules. They knew all the rules. And Paul saying, the rules are important, and you need to follow the rules, but follow the rules because of your relationship. Follow the rules. Be obedient because you have internalized what you have been taught. Then submit to Christ in obedience. Don't submit to the rules. Submit to Christ. And then work on your salvation or your sanctification by obedience. Don't say, I'm getting better as I follow the rules. Because it doesn't work that way. Following the rules doesn't make you better. Improve your relationship. Work out your sanctification. Work uh, uh, in obedience in relationship to Christ. Be more like Him. And then hear God's will and do God's work. There are your marching orders. I, I know I've talked to y'all before about this, and I just want to reiterate this, and I'm going to do it a bunch of times, uh, especially as we work through letters. And I've used this analogy before. One sermon, one Bible study, one discipleship group, whatever we're doing, is like a single piece of paper. Now, you, you may have an incredible experience at one sermon. There may be a sermon that just, wow, I had never thought of it that way before, and it changes your trajectory. Or it may be a Bible study, one time, it's especially those times when you hear the gospel and you come to Christ. That's obviously a life-changing thing. But most sermons, most time in Bible study, uh, whether it's a connect group or whatever, is about the width of a piece of paper. It's just not that much change. There's just, it's, it's not, it's not phenomenal. But if you stack enough of those together, you get a pretty weighty difference, right? Hundreds of times in God's Word. Hundreds of sermons, hundreds of connect groups, hundreds of D groups, podcasts of other preachers, other Bible study leaders, hundreds of times of just reading and studying God's word on your own. You begin to stack pages that by themselves don't carry much weight, don't cause much change. But over time, you get enough of them you get a substantial thickness of faith. So this morning, if you look at those marching orders of the what should I do, and you say, I'm, I'm, I'm doing those. I'm, I'm, yeah, okay, I got it. Do it some more. Do it a little bit more. Okay, you've got it in this area, but what about this? Yeah, I think about Christ, I submit to Christ here, but I'm not, oh, yeah, that side, that's a little by little. I'm not up here on a Sunday morning necessarily, if it works out this way, great, to radically change your world in these 45 minutes that I've talked. I'm here to move the needle just a little bit. Let God's word move the needle just a little bit. 
My last analogy. The difference in one degree, if you leave London in a boat or an airplane, a difference of one degree south versus straight across or what you're aiming for, one degree change, if I remember correctly, makes the difference between landing in New York City or landing somewhere along the Charleston, South Carolina. One degree, just one little bit of change over time leads to a huge difference. Well, what if we get one degree over time, over time, and we find that we finally changed direction completely on something? That's, that's that relationship with Christ. That's emptying and humbling and working out your own sanctification. What if you don't have that salvation to work out? What if you don't have that sanctification? Uh, Michael, you said you're saved, you're being saved, you're going to be saved. I'm not even sure if I've been saved. Well, you can be. You can trust Christ for your salvation today. You can understand God has a plan, God has a design, and it's perfect, and, and sin is the ruin of that plan. Sin is the ruin of our lives. Sin is the problem in our lives. You, you don't have a relationship problem, you have a sin problem. You don't have a financial problem, you have a sin problem. You don't have a health problem, you have a sin problem. It's even those health issues that, you, that sin didn't cause, they are a result of sin. The brokenness in our world is all a result of of sin, and you can do nothing about that sin. You can do nothing about that brokenness. You can't fix it, and you never will be able to. Self-help won't do it. Drugs won't do it. Alcohol won't do it. None of these things that we try to patch our lives with will do it. The only thing that will fix the sin problem in your life is the gospel. That's it. And the gospel is simply that the perfect Son of God, Jesus, fully man, fully God, lived on earth, perfect life. He died at the hands of sinners. He was crucified. He was buried. On that cross, he took my sin and my punishment. He took your sin and your punishment. And three days later, he rose from the grave to prove that he had conquered death and sin. And then, though, we have to make a decision about what we're going to do with Jesus, what we're going to do with our sin. We repent of our sin and we believe in Jesus. I know I'm a sinner. Repentance just means admitting and turning away from it. Say, I know I'm a sinner. Jesus, save me. I want to experience salvation with you. And if we do that, he will save us instantly. And we will have that point of justification when, when we were made new, when we were saved. And over time, we will be sanctified. We will begin to recover and pursue God's design in our lives. That sanctification until the day Jesus comes back and takes us home. Until the day that believers will bow the knee and confess the name of Jesus in joy and in worship. And those who have never trusted Jesus Christ will do it in obedience, but too late. And they will do it prior to their judgment in an eternity in a Christless hell. And you can experience the salvation today that you don't have to work out. You don't have to work out being saved. Jesus has already done that for you. You only need to repent and believe him. Let's pray. Father... Thank you, Lord, for 
your salvation that begins the process of our sanctification. Lord, thank you that you don't give up on us. Thank you that the relationship is where it begins. Lord, I pray that we as believers will empty and humble ourselves, will internalize Scripture, we will submit to Christ, and then we will work on our sanctification by submitting to your Lordship in obedience to who Christ is. And God, we will hear your will and we will do your work. And we will let that change who we are as individuals and change who we are as a church. God, I pray for the one who hears today that has never trusted Jesus Christ as their Savior, that they would follow in obedience, that they would repent of their sin, turn to you, place their faith in you, believe. And God, we know from your word, if we repent and believe, you'll save. And, and, and it requires no work on our part, just an admission an admission that we need you. God, work on our hearts over these next few moments as we meditate on your word, as we meditate on you, as we hear you speak, even as we sing. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So this morning, altar's not open, but you may want to pray, you may want to receive Christ, you may want to just pray about some things that you have going on. Do that where you are, and after the service, if you'd like to talk to me or Tom or Amy or someone else, grab one of us or wave at us, actually, you know, get in front of us. And, and we'd love to go and talk to you about that, how you can have a relationship with Jesus. But over the next few minutes as we sing, do business with God.